Amen. First Presbyterian Church Outdoor Edition. I'm really excited to be here. Yay. Well, we're continuing in Ephesians. Um, we're three weeks into our exploration of the letter to the, uh, to the Ephesians. And this morning, we've come to the end of the first chapter. Come on, you can come join us. Good morning. Uh, we're at the end of the first chapter where Paul informs the Ephesian church that he's been praying for them unceasingly, nonstop. And ever, ever since he, he heard of their faith in Jesus and their love for the saints. And it's here in Paul's confession of continual prayer, of unceasing prayer, that his weakness is exposed. Paul cannot actually accomplish what he most desires, and his only recourse is prayer. And in just a few minutes, we're going to take a look at the content of Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. But first, we must appreciate the mere fact that Paul is praying here. Last week, we explored, explored verses 3 through 14 together, the material that immediately precedes Paul's prayer. And within those 12 verses, which are actually only a single sentence in the Greek, Paul skillfully laid out the history of God's redemption of the world, beginning with God's divine choice before the foundation of the world and stretching into the eternal future that Jesus has opened up to us in his resurrection. And on this timeline, from eternity past to eternity future, Paul situates the church in between these two eternal anchors in order that we might no longer have to live for ourselves in the present because our identities are, are secure in God's gracious choice of us before we've done anything good or bad before we were born even. And our future is certain having been made children of God and heirs to an inheritance that's being reserved for us in the heavenly places beyond the reach of rust and moth or, or market volatility or anything else that threatens earthly possessions. You see, Paul believes that if he can truly get it into the, the hearts and the minds of the Ephesians, that to, to whom we belong, where we've come from, and where we are going, to whom we are returning, and if we can understand that these, these beautiful guarantees are, are all a gift freely given to us, if we can understand those things, then we'll be able to live humbly in this present world, because it's all a gift. While at the same time, because our future is guaranteed in Christ, be able to obstinately resist cultural pressures to conform to social narratives that compromise wholehearted allegiance to Christ and his truth even if such resistance comes at great cost to ourselves. And this isn't just an untested theory, some cockamamie formula that Paul cooked up in his head. Because Jesus proves this when he washes the disciples' feet before the Last Supper. The washing of feet in that culture was a role reserved for people considered insignificant. Nobodies on the social status. And yet Jesus, the Son of God, assumed that very role when everyone else refused. And it was truly scandalous and offensive. And you can hear Peter's offense when Jesus comes to him and kneels down in front of him to wash his feet. He says, 
surely you shall not wash my feet. And yet Jesus insisted because the gospel demands that the Son of God wash us and make us clean. And so he washed Peter's feet despite his objections. And here in Jesus, you simultaneously have both humility and obstinacy to do what God requires of him. And significantly, the Gospel of John tells us that it uh, tells us what was in Jesus's mind before he washed his disciples' feet in John in John 13, verses three through five. Read, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel tied it around his waist and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him knowing that he had come from God and that he was going back to God and that the father had given all things to him that that everything he had received was a gift freely given Knowing these same things that Paul is trying to get into the minds of the Ephesian church and trying to get into our minds, Jesus insisted that he perform the most humble task in the Greco-Roman world despite objections and scoffing from even his closest friends. He proved that this, this belief, these, these eternal anchors, produce the desired results in the present, which is freedom to act boldly and yet humbly. And, but there's just one problem for Paul. How do you get these truths into people's minds and into their hearts? In verse 18, Paul recognized that the Ephesians need to have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. It isn't enough to see with the eyes in your head. Transformation only happens when you see with the eyes in your heart. When you see from there, from the heart, that's when, when true faith, when true belief takes root. And the problem is that Paul's no heart surgeon, but God is. Therefore, Paul's only recourse was prayer. It's why Paul prays in verse 17, why his prayer in verse 17 begins with the request that God would give the Ephesians the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That's the Holy Spirit so that they might know God and be changed, having the eyes of their hearts open and enlightened. Only the, only the Spirit of God can open the heart's eyes. Only the Spirit can produce knowledge of the truth. Therefore, Paul, therefore prayer was Paul's only recourse for the Ephesians. And really, prayer is the only recourse that any of us has when we long for change of any kind, whether it's quitting some self-destructive behavior, treating people with dignity, or trusting Jesus Christ. You can plead or protest, scoff or shout all you want, but unless the Holy Spirit is at work in the hearts of people involved, then the needle will never move in the right direction. The eyes of the heart will remain slammed shut. And yet how infrequently we pray. Isn't that strange? We don't pray very much. Why is that? To my great shame, it took a pandemic for us to offer an opportunity at First Presbyterian Church to be praying together outside of our Sunday morning worship service. 
We now offer the chance to pray together every Wednesday morning and evening using the daily office from the Book of Common Prayer. I'd invite you to, to come join us. And we'll make some version of this a regular part of our life once we become more comfortable with in-person gatherings. Come join us. But do you pray on your own as well? How often? For how long? Paul prayed unceasingly. <laughs> and it was the most natural conclusion to the 12-verse attempt to get the Ephesians to understand their lives in Christ and in the context of salvation history. He knew that he could never be eloquent enough. He could never be persuasive enough that prayer would somehow become unnecessary. Instead, he spoke, and then he prayed that God would grant the Ephesians knowledge of the things he said. He spoke and prayed, prayed and spoke. And the two actions reinforce one another. Prayer is the way in which our weakness is transformed into strength. Through prayer, our actions are used by God to accomplish his divine purposes in this world. And without prayer, all we do lacks power and purpose. And there are three things that Paul prayed for the Ephesians. He asked God to give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they might know, one, what is the hope to which God has called them. Two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are listed out in verses 18 and 19 for you. And put these requests more simply. And Paul was praying that the Ephesian church might know their inheritance, God's inheritance, and the power of God. And he prayed this for the Ephesians, but he might as well have been praying for you. Because the motivation for Paul writing this letter, as we have said, is merely to encourage true Christian faith in the church. And that's a highly transferable purpose that relates to Christians in Salem Springs just as it did to Christians in Ephesus. Paul prays for you then, that you might know your inheritance, God's inheritance, and the power of God. And already, both last week and a little bit this week, we have talked about the inheritance that is promised to Christians in Christ, that, that future eternal anchor. We will inherit an entirely new world, one that Peter calls imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Everything we love or have loved in this world will be made new again. And our sorrows in this world will be eclipsed by our joys in the next. And it's this inheritance that serves as that future eternal anchor we discussed earlier that frees Christians to live a bold and obstinate faith in the present because their future is glorious and guaranteed. But Paul wants you to know more than merely what is coming your way. He wants you to know that God also has an inheritance. And Paul calls it a gloriously rich one in verse 18, before revealing that God's inheritance is in the saints. He's saying that the saints, that is, those who love and trust Jesus Christ, are God's inheritance. And here we get a glimpse into God's motivation behind the redemption of his good yet broken creation. From the beginning, before the foundation of the world, Paul says, God was motivated solely by love and joy at the prospect of inheriting you. 
redeeming you from the corruption of sin and death in order to give you life and true freedom. And to do this, the father was willing to sacrifice his true and only son, his only obedient son, Jesus Christ, in order that he might inherit you, a false and disobedient son or daughter. This is the price he was willing to pay, the sacrifice he was willing to make in order to inherit you. And now that you are his in Christ, he rejoices over you. He's proud of you. He dotes on you. May God give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, having the eyes of your heart enlightened to know the love that God has for you so that you may become full and satisfied in him alone. Your inheritance is him. His inheritance is you. And there's a third thing that Paul Ask God to make you know and see with your heart's eyes. And this is the power of God towards those who believe. God's power was most explicitly demonstrated in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 20 that God showed his power. He demonstrated it when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. In other words, God is more powerful than all the known powers, whether physical or spiritual or viral even. He's more powerful than death itself. And Christ, who was the recipient of God's power in the resurrection, remains enthroned in the heavens to this day. He rules over all things in this world. And he is the head of the church, Paul says, his body that endures in the world. What Paul is saying that is that God had, has showed his power in Christ, and Christ in turn shows his power in the church. He always leads us to victory, even if the path should lead through death. He'll never forsake us or abandon us because he was already forsaken and abandoned on our behalf. There's nothing and no one that can lay hold of us that Christ cannot defeat. And there are times when he mercifully chooses to show his power in this life. Like when he recently drove the cancer out of Glenn Morris's body. When he, when he graciously cleared Logan Himes of all infection or spared the life of our office administrator, Sandy Phillips, despite her heart ceasing to beat numerous times. And it's easy to praise God for his power in those moments, but we're not guaranteed those moments in this life. And so there are also times when he allows tragic events to unfold and he seemingly appears absent, but do not mistake his silence for absence because his power extends beyond the boundaries of this life. He may be silent in this life, but shout to you in the grave like he did his friend Lazarus and command you to come out and live. He's never absent. And his power toward us is, as Paul calls it in verse 19, immeasurably great. He always leads us to victory, even if the path should lead through death. But it's a path that he has trodden ahead of us, and he knows the way. May you know him and experience his power in this life and in the life to come. He's yours. You are his, and always he watches over you in power.
May you see all of these things with the eyes of your heart. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.